Grab your Bibles. Turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. Starting at verse 12. Acts 5. Here we're reading from the Word of the Lord. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together at Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were being added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might be cast on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the the party of the Sadducees, and and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said... Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, Well, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed by them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you had put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to say, teach in this name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And I love this part. And Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at the right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. We are all witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But the Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, the teacher of the law, held in high honor by all the people, stood and gave orders to them to put the men outside for a little while. 
And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutius rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and nothing to come, and came to nothing. After him, Judas, Judas the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, here's the reality. Those of you who are parents, raise your hand real quick. Like, Okay. As parents, you can put your hands down. As parents, all of us want to instill in our children kind of this unquestioning obedience, right? We look at them and we, we want them, when, when dad says something, what do you want? Hop two. You listen and obey the first time, not the third Not the fourth, not the fifth. When dad speaks, you listen and you hop too. When mom speaks, you don't wait till dad comes home to enforce it. You as a parent, as a mother, you want your children to listen and obey, right? All of us have that deep desire that we want to instill in our children a sense of obedience. Obedience. God wants the same thing. Sometimes as parents, we we want our children to obey, honestly, out of convenience, right? It would just make my life so much easier. If you would just obey and do what I want, my house would run like this. I don't have to swing back and, you know, in the car. Would you just be quiet about it? You just want children to obey. Sometimes it's out of convenience. Other times we want obedience for the sake of safety, right? We want our children to be safe. We want them to grow up and know that, you know, Daddy said this for this purpose, and it's for your good, your safety. We want them to obey us because we want them to grow up to be godly men and godly women who obey the Lord, right? But here's the reality with God. Sometimes when God calls us to obey, it's not always what we might perceive to be for our safety and security. You read through this this story that we find in the book of Acts with the apostles. He called them to obey. 
He sent an angel to open up the doors and said, listen, I want you to leave this prison and I want you to go and teach again in the common places of your life. I want you to preach this and know this, you're probably going to get beaten. But I want you to obey. Because you have the good news. I want you to share all about this life. All about this life. All of it. Go, listen, and obey. And the problem is these, the high priest and his cronies, man, when they, when they saw the popularity that these apostles were getting for being faithful, for being obedient, it enraged them. Absolutely enraged the, the religious system of the day. They were ticked off. How dare you? And thank God Gamaliel stepped in and said, listen, if this is of man, it is going to do what? It's going gonna, it's gonna to fail. But if it's of God, man, it is going to stand and there's nothing that you can do to oppose it because God is greater than you. Obedience. The apostles were unstoppable in their obedience to God. Unstoppable in their obedience to God. Especially in the matter of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. They were unstoppable. Man, if you're going to beat me, I'm not going to go back for some more. But they kept on going back. So our theme for this morning, our theme is this. No matter what. Say it. No matter what. We must obey God by proclaiming and teaching that Jesus Christ is a risen Savior and Lord. No matter what. Okay, do you got that? No matter what. No matter what. We, we are called to be Christ's ambassadors who are going out no matter what. Every one of you. It's not just for the clergy, the elders and the deacons and the paid staff. It is each and every one of you are called to be ambassadors with this good news. I don't care your age, how young you are, or how old you are. We are all ambassadors that no matter what, we must obey God. In our whole life, not just Sunday mornings, obey God by proclaiming this good news. No matter what. And I believe our text this morning reveals four marks of an obedient Christian. What an obedient Christian looks like. Here's the first one. An obedient Christian, they have a fear of God's holiness. A fear of God's holiness. If you look earlier, and last time that I preached, we, we heard about Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira lied. They were intentionally being deceptive. And what happened to them? One by one, Ananias came in, he lied, he was being deceitful, and immediately, done. A little bit later, his wife comes in. I don't know if she thought she was going to pull a fast one. 
But same thing. She was, she was done. Well, if that would happen at Missio Day Church or Roseland Christian Reformed Church, and our communities hear about that, what do you think? Are, are people going to say, oh, sign me up for that one? I, I'd like to check out that church because uh, you know what? I, I don't lie and I don't deceive. Sign me up for that one. No, there, there was great fear because there was great power. And these people had now a holy fear of a holy God, right? The odd thing is that a church that unbelievers did not dare attend grew. They were scared literally to death. They were scared. And these early saints had not been uh, caught up in this whole modern church growth movement. If you do this, if you talk slick and smooth to these people, they'll come on in and your church will grow. If you have the slickest musicians, if you have these kind of things going on in your church, oh, your church is just going to grow. Now what did they have? They had a holy fear of a holy God. A holy fear of a holy God. And what, what happened in spite of that? The church grew. The church grew by the hand of God. We live in a day where if a man preaches the fear of God and the holiness of God, he's labeled a fundamentalist. He's one of those conservative, fundamentalist type of people. If the church practices discipline by putting sinning members who refuse to repent out of the church, they're labeled unloving and intolerant. But sin, here's the reality folks, sin destroys people. We've seen it in all of our communities, in all of our family. Sin destroys people. not drugs it's the sin at the bottom of it it's not even lying it's even getting deeper to that sin destroys people and it it is never loving to allow a person to continue on in sin it is never loving the church is to be marked with obedient Christians who fear the Lord and His holiness. We will always, and we need to always judge our lives first, but also lives in the church. So obedient Christians have a fear of the Lord's holiness Second thing that I, that I see in this text is that obedient Christians will know the Lord's power through the Holy Spirit. They will know the Lord's power through the Holy Spirit. The early church experienced the Lord's power mightily, didn't they? Even, even the, they, what did they do? Man, there were crowds gathering around Peter and the apostles, hoping that there'd be a healing. Man, they started just laying people in the streets, just hoping that Peter, as he passed by, that his, his shadow would fall on them. 
and that they would be healed. There was great power going on in that early church. And many people would say, man, if the churches would just repent of their sins and have faith in God, then we would see miracles on par of what we saw in Acts. But I don't think that that's necessarily in line with biblical teaching. It was not every church member who was performing miracles, right? But rather the the apostles and a few other leading men in the church. The purpose of God granting these miracles was to confirm the gospel message and to authenticate that these men were God's messengers in the early days. Now, don't hear hear me say that miracles do not happen today because, man, I I believe that they did. And this is... This is one of the greatest miracles that takes place. God taking a hard heart of stone and transforming that heart of stone into a heart of flesh that loves and serves God. That is the greatest miracle that ever takes place. And that is what the Gospel message does, doesn't it? It takes my hard heart, it takes your hard heart, and it takes it from a heart of stone and transforms it into a beating heart that loves the Lord, that serves the Lord, that chases after the Lord, that serves Him and obeys Him no matter what. So, obedient Christians will know the Lord's power But it's easy to get caught up into this kind of health and wealth movement. If you do this, then this will happen to you. Here's the reality. God did not deliver James or Paul from prison. In fact, Paul was beheaded. He didn't spare most of the apostles from martyrdom. Paul did not heal Trophimus or tell Timothy to change, to claim healing by faith for his frequent stomach issues. But God desires, demands our obedience no matter what, no matter what your station of life is. He desires your obedience. Another thing that I see in this is that obedient Christians fear God over and above civil authorities. They fear God and obey God above and over civil authorities. The Bible commands Christians to be subject to governing authorities. Why? Because God put them in place. God put Rahm Emanuel in that place. He may have run a slick program. He may have campaigned at all the right places and talked to all the right people. You may have cast your ballot. But ultimately, who put Rahm Emanuel in office? God. We are to be subject to the governing authorities because God put them in place. Even And this is a scary thing, even when these authorities are evil people. But if the governing authorities 
command us to do something that would be disobedient to God, then we must obey God. Even if it results in our being punished. Christians disagree over civil disobedience unlike the matter of abortion. And how do we handle that? How do we handle that? While it's evil for our government to permit these things, the life of a child, of a human being, taken. We should work and pray to see that our, these evil laws are overturned. But the government is not forcing us, is it? The government is not forcing us to have abortion. Much like China is. If it came to that, then we should disobey the government. Disobey. If the government says that we cannot meet as Christians or teach what the Bible says about homosexuality, about abortion or other moral issues, then we must disobey the government. Thus, obedient Christians fear the holiness of God. They will know the power of God through the Holy Spirit and they will obey Him above all other authorities. But also, number four, obedient Christians boldly and persistently proclaim the message of life in Jesus Christ. No matter what the cost. Boldly and persistently. I, part of me would love to do a poll right now of how many Christians in this room, those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, how many people boldly and persistently Share their faith in Jesus Christ. Share the Gospel. How many of you have done it yesterday? How many of you have done it in the past week? How many of you have done it in the past month? What about the past year? The research is staggering about how few of us boldly and persistently share the good news of Jesus Christ. Why part of it is that we buy into this mentality, well, that, that's the pastor's. That's the pastor's responsibility. He, he is to be in charge of all evangelism. I show up for Sunday. Go, therefore, to the whole world. You go, therefore, into the whole world and preach the Gospel. Share the Gospel wherever you are planted. In your schools. In your workplaces. In your marriages. In your families. In your common places of life. In your coffee places. In your restaurants. Wherever God has planted, you are to boldly and persistently proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ because it is good news. The question is, do you believe it is good news? Do you? Do you? Really? 
If you believe it is the best news that you have ever heard, that you've ever received this gift of life, you will go. Boldly and persistently. Each of you will. Each of you will. And there's a number of things that we see about this proclamation. Number one, we see this. The proclamation involves confronting sinners with sin. That's right. That's part of the gospel message of saying, you don't realize how terrible you really are. But what do we want to do? Oh, I just love my sister. Oh, someday she'll come to Christ. Just If I love her enough, oh, I just, oh, I love her. And what, we, we don't want to offend anybody, right? But the gospel confronts us with the holiness of God and our total depravity. The holiness of God and our total depravity. Our persistent, bold proclamation of the gospel has got to confront people with sin and us naming sins. And I'm not talking about like the big extravagant ones. How about the sin of gossip? Yeah, uh uh-oh. How about pride? How about being slothful and lazy? We confront people with the good news of the gospel by showing them how much they are in need of a Savior because of the sinful nature of their life. You're broken. You don't even realize it. You're broken. You are broken. But we, we like to tiptoe around that issue, don't we, of sin. Tiptoe around it. and We don't want to hit people too hard with the gospel. We want them to feel good about this message. Maybe get their hands up in the air, singing, Jesus, Jesus, but never confront the sin. Maybe eventually we'll slip in the gospel. But if people do not come under the conviction as sinners who have despised Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross, Why do they need a Savior? What is He saving them from? Low self-esteem or some perverted gospel? It's only when a person sees the magnitude of his or her sin that he or she will flee to Jesus. And understand this last song that we sung, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. But praise the One who's paid my debt I get it, and it can make me cry because I know, I know the depth of my sin and I was the one that nailed him to the tree. It was me. I understand it. I get it. We must not did, dodge the issue of sin and God's judgment. The second thing that we see is this proclamation involves exalting Jesus. Jesus, 
Jesus is the hero of the story. The hero of the story is not, hear this, your church program, our church program. The hero of the story is not a shelter. The hero of the story is Jesus Christ. And we are called to exalt, elevate Him above all else. No program or social gospel or any other social program shall ever come above Jesus Christ. Or else you're worshiping the wrong God and the wrong solution. Oh, praise the one who has paid my debt. Jesus or program? Jesus. So how do we do that? We help people realize that they're spiritually dead and that only God can give them life. That's why the angel said, man, I want you to go back out and I want you to teach people all about this life. Jesus said in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man can come to me except through... So, Jesus is it. And we need to elevate Him as the solution. The hope for the world is Jesus and not programs and not even politics. We've seen where politics have gotten us. I don't care what aisle, side of the aisle you stand on, Republican or Democrat, neither have saved us, have they? Maybe it's time to start worshiping Jesus. He is the prince, the savior, the author, the perfecter, the creator, the one who has gained our salvation. We need to elevate Jesus Christ. And how do we do this? Showing them their sins. Offering them hope through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. What is repentance? It's going in one direction and doing what? 180 degrees, going the other way. I'm no longer following this world, its programs, its issues, its hopes, its dreams, and the Ameri- even the American dream. I'm no longer going that way. I am turning to the one that I want to exalt, Jesus Christ. And I am repenting and going this way, hard and fast and persistently, after Jesus Christ. He's the one. Knowing that along with repentance, Jesus grants the forgiveness of sins. Atoning. the Atonement. His blood in place of my life. He has atoned. He has offered peace. The other thing in this proclamation involves offering repentance and forgiveness to the worst of sinners. Remember that Peter was preaching to the very men who had callously murdered Jesus a few months ahead. He was preaching to them and saying, listen, you killed him. 
you did. The very ones who carried out the execution plans. Peter was preaching to them, hoping that the gospel would warm their hearts and turn them to Christ. He was offering the, the gospel to people that we would say are hopeless. And the irony is Gamaliel was the, the teacher of a, of a man who was burning with anger towards the church. His name was Saul. What happened to Saul some days later? Oh, he turned to the Lord, didn't he? And Paul identified himself as what? The worst of, yeah, the greatest, the worst of sinners. This proclamation goes to those that you think in your head are hopeless. I, I want you in your head right now, after you consider yourself hopeless, I want you to think in your head, who is it in your life, in your circle, is hopeless? That you just say, there's just no hope for this person. They are so far, they have hit the bottom, and they keep on, for some reason, keep on going. They are so callous, so hard-hearted, they're closed-minded, their hearts are just frozen. They have the ability that whoever they touch become frozen as well. You know what? The gospel needs to go to those people. Because in Christ, there is hope. There's no such thing as a hopeless cause. Because we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. This proclamation has got to be bold, and it's got to also be persistent. When the angel let him go, he told them to go to the temple and speak to the people, and they obeyed. After they were arrested, Peter said to the Sanhedrin, man, we've got to listen to God rather than man. He had a, a similar thing happen in his previous encounter. We cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and we've heard. We're, we're witnesses to the greatest thing ever. Even after their backs were laid open with 39 lashes, we read, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on preaching and teaching about Jesus Christ. They weren't creative in saying, you know what, um, man, we got busted at the temple last time. Let's go to another place. What did they do? They went right back. They kept on going back. And they were persistent. Keep on keeping on. What does it take to get you to stop proclaiming the gospel? A bad day? Somebody turning you down? Laughter? Ridicule? Pride? Spurgeon says this, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, but if we are so gentle and quiet, we do not use strong language about other people's opinions, but let them go to hell out of the charity to them. 
We are not all fanatical. We would not wish to save any sinner who does not particularly wish to be saved. Neither would we thrust our opinions upon them, though we know they are being lost for a lack of the knowledge of Christ crucified. Do not drivel away your existence upon baser ends, but count the glory of Christ to be the only object worthy of your manhood strength. And spread the truth, the only pursuit worthy of your mental powers. Spend and be spent in your Master's service. Spend and be spent in your Master's service. You know what I would love today? I would love to hear people recommit to the mission that Christ has sent us all out on. That as some of you go back to Roseland and some of you go back to the Lincoln Way area, that we recommit to this, that we are going to spend and be spent on this very mission, on the Master's service. Lord, send me. Here I am. It's going to get ugly. Lord, I'm going to take another one for the team. For your glory. Lord, send me. Wouldn't it be amazing if in our schools, teens actually said, Lord, send me. In our homes and in our communities, Lord, take me. Send me. Lord, take me. I will do whatever it takes to boldly and persistently share the gospel with the worst of sinners, recognizing that I myself was one of them. Those are my hopes. Here's the reality, though. This proclamation meets various responses. These... uh, Men in the Sanhedrin were jealous and angry because of power and position. Others responded with reason tolerance without acceptance as Gamaliel did. We're not sure if any of those men came to Christ. We don't know. With the worst of sinners recognizing that I myself was one of them. Those are my hopes. Here's the reality, though. This proclamation meets various responses. These uh, men in the Sanhedrin were jealous and angry because of power and position. Others responded with reason tolerance without acceptance as Gamaliel did. We're not sure if any of those men came to Christ. We don't know. But historically, we've seen that the Gospel even though it's faithfully, boldly, and persistently proclaimed, has varying results. 
Missio Dei Church is a church on some given Sundays of 75 people. Maybe 100. If we're really lucky and Rosalind joins us, we got to build a building. Historically, there's stories like Richard Greenham, who served as a pastor in, in Cambridge, England, in the 1500s. He rose daily at four in the morning. What time? Four! Who does that? Every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, he preached to his congregation at daybreak before they went into the fields. Four! Four o'clock in the morning. On Sunday, he preached twice. And on Sunday nights and Thursday morning, he catechized the children. He was a godly and faithful man who, as he put it, preached Christ crucified unto myself and the country people. Yet, his ministry was virtually fruitless. He told his successor that he perceived no good wrought upon his ministry, but only one family. One family. From 1570 to 1590. 20 years of ministry. One family. But then there's the story of Richard Baxter. In 1641 to 1660, it was a town of about 2,000 adults. And when he came to town, he found them ignorant. How'd you like to be in that congregation? Ignorant, rude, and reveling people. Hardly one family on the street professed to follow God. Their church held about 1,000, but it proved to be far too small. He would have built... They had to build five galleries on the church to hold the crowds. Now on the Lord's Day, as you walk the 